Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. One second. All right. Welcome, everyone, to our January 24th gathering. We're glad you're with us, whether you're joining us live in this Zoom format or some point later on this month or a year, anywhere around the world that you're joining us via our podcast. We're glad that you are with us today as we continue in our series uh, called, where we are looking at different stories of calling um, of characters in the scripture and um, things that go along with that calling. And we're gonna do that again today um, in Mark's gospel chapter two. So if you have your Bible to Mark's gospel chapter two, a couple of things while you're turning there. I noticed this week and well, it's not just so much this week, but probably in the weeks um, leading up to um, this new year, that with today's social media tools, it's really easy to respond quickly to messages. But sometimes our speed of response may keep us from considering carefully our words. I think it doesn't help, though, that some of the formats where they limit the number of characters or we have to keep things into smaller, tight sentences, um, I understand that, and we can we can post things that might send a message we really didn't intend. And sometimes our responses can make people wonder what gave us the right to say what we did, this or that. And then before you know it, there's this this stream of conversation or these strings of conversation that just plain old look ugly. And I was thinking about that, uh, what it might have been like in the time of Jesus had they had social media like we do today. Because Jesus never backed down on his words, even if they led to controversy. And his words, even if they led to some kind of controversy, some people thinking them maybe to be outrageous, if he knew they were to be true, he he kind of stuck to them. He stood strong on them. And today, as we continue our study of Mark, we're going to begin to see the questioning of Jesus's authority. We saw his calling several weeks ago, but now we're going to encounter the first real sense of questioning of his authority. And our text is a favorite Sunday school Bible story. If you, any of you were Sunday school teachers, you will remember this one. This is a great story because it provided so many craft opportunities for us um, in Mark chapter two. Um, But this is the third gospel in which we've considered this idea of calling. And just by way of of, um, information, Matthew and Luke also tell this story slightly differently, but they do tell the story as well. But as I said, we're in our third different gospel account. And so let me kind of catch you up to where we are at this point in in Mark's gospel. Up to this point, Jesus um, really has been an enigmatic figure. He has just kind of burst on the scene, literally out of nowhere, out of this nowhere backwoods town called Nazareth. He's already in Mark's gospel, been baptized by John in the Jordan River. He has also, as we've seen before in our earlier gospel accounts, He's been driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. He's been tempted there. And now in Mark's gospel, he seems to kind of taken up the mantle where John the Baptist left off. He's he's returned to Galilee. He's uh, proclaiming repentance. He's announcing the imminence of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is right here. And he's already so famous that he can't go into the synagogues in a town because there's really not enough space. He literally has to go out in the countryside 
to accommodate the crowds who have been gathering around him. A lot of that we know has to do with the fact that he has performed a series, a number of miracles that have been recorded and probably countless others that were not. But also because so many people wanted to come and hear him, he had a way of speaking about the scriptures, about the kingdom of God that was so different, something that they hadn't heard in literally generations. And in our text today, we're also introduced to the scribes, um, at least this is the first one in the Gospels where their presence, both their presence and their thoughts are recorded for us. So it might be good for us to talk just a briefly before we dive into the text a little bit about these scribes. These scribes considered themselves the guardians, the interpreters, the, the commentators on the Torah, the law. Um, they were blogging the Bible, if you will. They saw themselves as the preservers of the scripture. And here's what I thought was is really important for us to remember, that every village had at least one scribe. Because above and beyond those duties, they also were the ones who would draft legal documents, things like um, marriage covenants, and, and sadly also, if need be, divorces, mortgages, any kind of uh, legal documentation. That was the job of the scribes, along with, obviously, copying the original manuscripts of the Torah and the historical books and poetic books. Um, they were official record keepers of the religious government of Israel. But by the time of Jesus, they'd gone far beyond their traditional duties. They had become professionals at spelling out the letter of the law. And Jesus seemed to kind of, kind of direct them back to the spirit behind it. And things had become so bad that the regulations and the traditions that the scribes had added to the law were not only doubled and quadrupled in some cases the number of laws, they elevated them to the point that the ones that they added were considered more important sometimes even than the law itself. So Mark gives us the sense that there's going to, to be some conflict between these people and Jesus moving forward. So if social media were there, these are going to be long ongoing strings and streams of conversation between the scribes and Jesus. All right, and that's our setup for where we are. And as, as we read and listen to the opening five verses, I'm gonna divide this one into sections again. And as you listen to the opening five verses of Mark two, I want you to listen, all of us, to listen for what stands out to you. And I'll give you some suggestions as different, odd, amazing, interesting questions you have, because I think it's kind of a, just a matter of fact opening, but it does allow for us to go, I wonder this or that, or I notice this, all right? So that's what we're going to be doing as we read these first five verses. But before we do that, would you join me in a word of prayer as we invite um, the Holy Spirit's presence to be made known to us in this process? Would you do that with me? All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity again to be together as our Jesus, in our Jesus family here through this Zoom format, and as others join us through podcasts, we're thankful that you give us this opportunity in the midst of this pandemic. And now we pray that your Holy Spirit's presence that is here amongst us, that we might be made aware of her presence, that we might respond accordingly to what you have for us from your word today, for we make our prayer in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, so Mark chapter 2 is where we're going to begin our time. Mark chapter two 
And let me just go ahead and read the first five verses. Again, you're listening for things that stand out to you, different, odd, amazing, just interesting questions you might have. And we'll pick up on that in just a minute. All right. Mark chapter two, beginning at verse one. I'm reading from the Common English Bible. After a few days, Jesus went back to Capernaum and people heard that he was at home. So many people gathered there. So many people gathered there, excuse me, that there was no longer space, not even near the door. Jesus was speaking the word to them. Verse three, some people arrived and four of them were bringing to him a man who was paralyzed. They couldn't carry him through the crowd, so they tore off part of the roof above where Jesus was. When they had made an opening, they lowered the mat on which the paralyzed man was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, child, your sins are forgiven. Five simple verses introducing the story. What comes to mind as you hear or read this story? Just those first five verses. What, what things go to your mind and say, hmm, anything? The you all fact that they lowered him through the roof. Oh, I mean, he messed up my house. So, yeah, Joylin, you're, you're picking up the fact of, um, yeah, somebody ripped the roof off of a house, okay? Exactly. I mean, mad. <laughs> Just matter of factly, just went up there and took the roof off. Okay. Exactly. What else? Steven? Thought it was kind of odd that he called him child. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Because the idea is he's a grown man, but he calls him child, or in some language in the original, um, it's child. We can be translated son. It's kind of gender neutral, if you will. It's just, yeah, child is a good way to a grown man. Why call him child? Good. What else? Peter? I, uh, I think that the whole roof thing would be quite disruptive. If, if a pastor was preaching and somebody started tearing down the roof, hey, it would take some time to make a hole that big and be quite, everybody be looking up and being distracted. And there'd be a lot of noise and dust and particles falling down on the crowd. And, um, and you know, what did they do while, they, what did Jesus do while this was happening? You'd think somebody would run out and start throwing rocks at them on the roof or something. Hey, cut it out. There's a sermon going on in here. Yeah, I love it. And, and Mark has no mention, not even a sentence about that. Some of you have been around long enough for me to tell you the story of, and remember the story when I was preaching something similar to this, where an older, um, uh, senior saint was pulling into the, uh, the uh, handicapped parking lot in front of the church building. And instead of hitting the brake, she hit the accelerator and it launched her car into the ladies room. It took out three of the four stalls in the middle of my sermon. And you talk about disruptive and like in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, amen. And then rush because the ambulances are coming in. I see fire trucks everywhere. Yeah, so what's happening here, right? There's gotta be debris falling down on the people there, right? Good. I think you're wow. overstating it a little bit. How so? Uh, construction back then would not have been that complicated, roofs in particular. Right. You'd be able to move stuff to the side and lower someone down. Yeah, it would be disruptive, but it wouldn't be like today. Yeah, good catch. Right. It's straw, likely straw mixed with some supporting things, some lattice work. But yes, agreed. It's not, we're not pulling off shingles we're not pulling off uh porcelain tiles or whatever not porcelain whatever the, the tiles things we're talking about moving things back but there still would be dust and debris don't you think jay uh, yes. disruptive but it's not like they're taking out chainsaws and 
Correct. <laughs> Cotton Holy. Good, good, good observation. Anybody else? Just anything else that stands out just about it. I appreciate the creativity and determination that these guys took to make that happen. Got that. That's good. Yeah. Brenda? Um, in our worldview, when we see someone who has an affliction, we don't usually think of them as being a sinner, but that was pretty common then. If you had an affliction, you were it was because you had sinned. Is that uh, a correct historical view? Yes, either you or your parents, someone in your family. So there was always a direct connection between sin and the consequences of some sort of a, of a physical yeah yeah ailment of some kind yeah sure anybody else yeah, Just some i'm amazed that it was how they got him down through the roof i keep thinking that takes some uh pretty strong individuals and the people on the bottom would have to lift up and help i would think or it was a very low roof one or the other i mean all of those are open right and that's what i love about the way Mark tells the story. It's just like, matter of fact, so many people, they can't even get to the door. So they look and say, well, let's go. And, and as Jay mentioned, construction's different. They would often have flat roofs on the top where they could go up. They would be accessed from the outside because that was where you wanted to go in the cool of the evening. Oftentimes you might sleep up there if the weather was um, mm -hmm. conducive for that. And so, yeah, for them to go, well, we could go up there and get down through there. Um, yeah, that's good. Ingenious, right? Um, I wonder about is I'm not muted. Is that um, the very first verses say that he came back to Capernaum and he was at home, and then the next thing we know, uh, there's a lot of people gathered and uh, they're taking down the roof and lowering somebody. Well, was this actually the home that he lived in? I had always thought it was just his hometown. Yeah, so that's that that brings up an interesting question. Um, this is where our semiotics comes in, where we kind of put pieces together from around. And um, you know, Lensweet, my mentor, one of the one who taught me how to think about semiotics, suggests that likely this would be his house, especially the way that Mark refers to it. We know Capernaum was his home base. There are some people who would say maybe it was Peter's house or James or John, but the way that Mark describes it at home and what happens, right? Um, you would think that whoever the owner of the house would make some objection or something along the line, just the way that Mark treats it, it, it makes it sound like this is where Jesus was based out of. He's sitting in his home. Again, semiotics only, but yeah, I don't think that's a stretch at all to think that it's either his home or the place he would call home. Yeah. Sherry, did you have a thought? I was thinking him being a carpenter, at least it wouldn't be that big a deal to fix the roof. <laughs> I like that. So um, what do you think it is that uh, draws people to at least consider what Jesus teaches? What is it that you think that we've kind of ascertained over the last few weeks that draws people to at least consider what Jesus is teaching? Anybody? Any thoughts on that? Is it personality? Is it style? Is it content? What is it? Some combination of things? What, what do you think it is? I think the miracles help. Well, certainly. <laughs> yeah, certainly. 
What do you think? I think maybe survive he gives out because when I think of Jesus, I'm thinking, okay, how could I kind of, he's more approachable like a professor. You know how you have the professor that you're, you feel comfortable approaching and asking questions. He's like, maybe he gets off that kind of world where he's approachable. Yeah, maybe a little different really vibe. Say, okay, I only help these people. I help everybody. So you're like, okay, I can just go talk to them too. Good. I like that. What else? Draws people to at least consider what Jesus is teaching. I think because he could go to the synagogue and stand up to the Pharisees and Sadducees arguments, that had to be for a lot of people um, intriguing. Sure, sure. The fact that he was willing to stand up to and, you know, actually not shy away from the religious leaders of the day, who they may or may not be agreeing with. Luther? Yeah, I'm wondering if the fact that, so as I understand it, um, most of the time when you had a rabbi, if you wanted to be under that rabbi, if you want to be one of his disciples, you would go to him, and he would usually be in the synagogue or somewhere in a legal office um, type. This is Jesus, a rabbi who's talking like the other ones and talking about the, the scripture, um, differently approachable, but also going out. We see him on the lakeside, out like wandering the countryside, just talking um, to crowds of people. So the going out, I'm sure, was drastically different. Yeah, I like that. Excellent observation. Because as we know, the, those who could go into the temple and into the synagogue was, was quite limited compared to the masses, right, that were there. So he's out with potentially people who could never um, go to a place like a synagogue or to the temple. Good. Yeah. Any other thoughts? David, don't you think that Jay's more onto it? I mean, I would think the miracles would bring these people more to listen to Jesus than anything else at that point in time. And when you see this story, that's pretty much about what it is about. So I'm just. Yeah. And yeah, and I'm not, I certainly am not going to put up any objection to that, you know, to the, to the, the spectacle that is these these pieces of uh, these miracles that he does. I also just don't want us to undersell um, the the background that we've set up over the last few weeks. That the way he speaks, where he speaks, how he is speaking, is different. And so there are some who maybe don't need healing that are still coming, right? And so I just don't want to undersell it to to it's a both and situation, right? And I think that. Um, in this case specifically, we see both because he introduces the fact that there are so many people and he is speaking the word to them, specifically, Mark says. He's not out doing a bunch of miracles at this point. He's speaking the word to him. So he's in teaching mode and the people are just massed around, right? The same thing was true last week when we looked at him sitting right on the lake, uh, on the Sea of Galilee, right? People are gathered around to hear him teach. So let's just balance those two. Good observation. Let's balance those two. What qualities impress you most about the four friends? Is it their, their faith, their love, their creativity, their determination, their boldness? Other words, what, what other things come to mind? What, what do you imp are you impressed most about them? It seems like they must have had a ferocious faith in God's ability to, Jesus's ability to heal their friend. And so, and so, and also a ferocious loyalty to their friend and compassion to their friend and desire for him to be well. 
I think but, you're right. I mean, but believing it, in Jesus that much. Right. Knowing if you go through all of this, you lower him down and then Jesus like ignores him yeah. or just kind of doesn't anything. Yeah. You got a lot at risk there. Good. What else? Now, verse five, notice verse five, Mark tells us that Jesus saw their faith. So first of all, to whom is the there referring? Sometimes we have to do this. I'm in editing mode in this book. So who's the there qualifying? Who's it referring to when he saw their faith? The friends who, lo who lowered yeah, so the Yeah, exactly. The friends who, who, who carried him up and lowered him down. But here's my question. So how did Jesus see their faith? And why do we they think believe that? that it would work? Like the gall that took Jesus basically break up the roof, lower the friends, like, well, Jesus will take care of it. It's believing that he'll do it. So I guess it's maybe not, I don't know if you can see their faces or not. I don't know how high the roof was or whatever, but I'm like, the fact that they believe that something would help the fact that they're doing this. Okay. What they did was pretty radical. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you don't just like off the cuff without, you know, just kind of, but yeah, they, they really want, they really felt like they needed to get this man to Jesus. They couldn't get through the crowds. The implication being they may have tried to bump through the crowds and the people weren't letting it happen. So they come up with another plan. So yeah, the fact that they were determined and creative. Any other ideas about how Jesus, how did Jesus see their faith? Certainly did seem to be able to see into people's hearts. Yeah, it's interesting. So he, you know, the idea that maybe he sensed what was happening inside of them, not just what they did, but the motivation behind why they were doing it. Good. Let me ask the question a different way. Do actions always show what people genuinely believe? Mm, no. <laughs> no, that was. I know my point. mother always says actions speak louder than words, but actions aren't always accurate in their in their framing of words. Okay, that's one way. I mean, like, goes back to yes, motivation. I mean, yes, you can say, okay, they're desperate; they want this, so they're gonna lower their friends. But also, somebody be like, oh, they just want attention. Oh, they're just trying to do this to make them look good. But God saw their true intent and as they wanted to help their friends of so just getting like their, I guess, recognition or just aesthetical. Courtney? I just said it's their motivation. If your actions are to elevate yourself, that's one thing. If your actions are really motivated by helping your friend and, and trusting that Jesus can do that, then I think that shows mm -hmm. the genuineness of your actions. Okay. Yeah, I would, I would use the term proactive. They're actively, you know, proactively going after it. It's a very forward thing. They're not reacting, trying to avoid something. They're not uh, responding to the law and going through em empty motions. This is a very uh, forward kind of action. Okay, good. Any other thoughts on, do actions always show what people genuinely believe? So I'm just going to throw another way to look at this. So Jesus could, could discern the difference, but these men could have been like a last ditch effort. We've tried everything else. We might as well try this. It, it's worked for some people. 
you know, but Jesus could discern that that was not their motivation, that their motivation was based on faith. Right. Excellent. Yeah. So I, we're, don't think, I don't think that actions always um, are a sign of what one believes, because sometimes we can do things out of fear mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and do something that's tro- totally contrary to our beliefs um, because we're scared. I like that. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that idea? Do we always... Do always do actions always show what people genuinely believe? Um, like sometimes people go to church to help just for someone else. Like they they're Easter Christmas kind of people just because that's what the family wants them to do and stuff. But they don't believe in God or, I mean that's just one example. But there are millions of examples like that where actions have nothing to do with what you really believe. It's just to appease someone or to please someone or because you just feel like it that day or whatever. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think that's what I was trying to, to make sure that we, that we observe, um, that just because an action is taking place doesn't always translate to this, this action is caused by faith or belief, right? Because there's many places in our own lives where we, those, two don't, those two things don't match up, right? So Jesus's first words to, uh, well, let me, let me ask this question first. So the man's paralysis meant he couldn't come to Jesus on his own. Is that detail, his inability to come to Jesus on his own, an important detail to the story? If so, why? If not, why not? Is that detail, his inability to come to Jesus on his own? Is that an important detail to the story? If so, why? If not, why not? I would say yes, because it requires all that effort by others to get him there. I like that. And that's where they're showing their faith. And I think he had to rely upon the fact that his friends were not just going to give up when they got there and saw there's all, because it would have been easy for them to get there and say, there's too many people, there's nowhere we're going to get through. And so he had to have um, faith and confidence in his friends that they were going to do whatever it took to make sure that he got in front of Jesus. Yeah. I'm wondering whose faith it was that motivated the whole thing to begin with. Was it the, the guy who was paralyzed? He begged his friends to do this for him, to get, to get him to Jesus? Or was it his friends that said, uh, we need to get you to Jesus? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So who's whose faith was it that motivated them to even go to Jesus, the paralytics or the friends? Yeah. Cause, and that's a good, that's a good observation that when we say that he saw their faith, that we kind of naturally picked up the four that were, um, you know, that did the extraordinary thing. And we kind of left the, the paralytic out of our association. It's almost like he was there, but didn't have a part of it. And we don't really know. Right. Mike's making a good point. It could be, that all five of them, you know, he could have been the one who's going, get me up there. Hey, get me on the roof, whatever. We don't know. Mark leaves that, you know, un, untold to us, right? Leaves it to our imagination. Yeah. So Jesus's first words to the paralyzed man are, your sins are forgiven. Do you, do we think this was what the man or his friends expected? 
And maybe the follow-up question, is it what they wanted? Why or why not? Oh yeah, you see, I don't, I don't give you the yes, no, fill in the blank questions. We gotta, we have to look a little deeper and say to ourselves, so was this what the man or his friends expected? Is it what they wanted? What do you say? They're looking for a miracle. They're looking for yeah. a physical miracle and then they got your sins are forgiven, which is not necessarily related to being paralyzed. Yeah, so that might've been a double take, Sherry. Yeah, I, I don't think that's what I would have expected Jesus to tell me as I'm laying there flat, but apparently that's what I needed. Right. Because yeah. he wouldn't have said it otherwise. True. But I think if, if people thought that they had these kind of disabilities because there was some sort of sin, I think that it wouldn't have been unexpected that he would have said your sins are forgiven, but I think what's missing is the follow-up, now get up and go. So your sins are forgiven, but then the action that says, now get up and walk. That, that's what I think is missing. And, and I don't disagree with you at all, Johannes. Uh, my only pushback would be, uh, yes, I think you're right. The connection with sin and, and uh, this paralyzation would have been paramount, would have been up there. But for Jesus to say those words, your sins are forgiven, that's something that would not have been in his, in their mind, it wouldn't have been in his authority because only who can forgive sin? Oh, God. God. So then it was him declaring, it's almost publicly him declaring who he is and, and letting them know that he is the Messiah they've been waiting for and he has the authority and the power to do this. Bingo. Bingo. Yeah, exactly. So were they expecting that? I, well, I would have to argue they probably weren't at this point. Um, whether or not it was because they were just looking for physical healing, or even if they were in tuned, as you said, Johannes, which they very may well have been, they're going, wow, you know, if I can get this man's sins forgiven, then maybe this will go away. I still don't think they would have expected it to come from this simple man from Nazareth who, you know, is speaking great things, but then to make that statement, that is a statement of my authority, which is really the focus of what we're what we're seeing here. This is the first challenge we're going to see here in a moment, the first challenge to his authority. So if we were in that man's position, which would we rather hear? Your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and go home? Don't answer that. We'll hold on to that toward the end because I think some of that may depend on some things. Um, I do, I do think it was interesting. Somebody noted um, that, I think it was Stephen. Yeah, it was Stephen that noted that Jesus called him a child. Do you think that that's, that choice of language is um, purposeful? I mean, I guess we would say every choice of language is purposeful. Um, what might that be conveying in the story? How are we supposed to understand child, your sins? That's how he says it, right? Child, your sins are forgiven. What's I think that's reinforcing his authority. If you think he's finally letting people know that I am, you know, I'm Messiah, this is me. So you are my child. Your sins are going to have that authority. So I think he, now he's establishing his place or letting them know where his place is officially. Okay. I, I was thinking it might be establishing his, the, the man's uh, being a child of Abraham, a son of Abraham, which Abraham lived under the blessing, not the curse. Okay, good. Stephen, did you have some thoughts back. as well? 
Yeah, I go back to the scripture about, you know, you must have the faith of a child in her heaven. But that's uh, what this has to do with. He sees his faith as a child's faith. Okay. It goes back to that. Okay. Any other thoughts there? Can I ask a question real quick, David? Sure. It's something that Johannes brought up that they, um, Jesus was, um, Jesus was revealing himself as their Messiah. Uh, my question is, were the Jews at that time expecting a spiritual Messiah? he's talking about your sins being forgiven or were they expecting a political messiah or both Ooh, that's a good question some thoughts from you before i others of you before i i chime in i'm not the sage on the stage necessarily here but what about what do you guys think about that are they looking at this point early in the gospel early in jesus life are they watching for political spiritual some combination of both what do you think in this early in the run, are they really talking terms of Messiah? Or is he just a, a teacher who is above and beyond those around him? I, think I don't think they're expecting a flesh and personification of, of God. I think they're expecting me like branded some something grand. Okay. Yeah, other thoughts? I think at this point, they, um, I mean, obviously the language of the, mess, the, the messianic, messianic language that's used in the First Testament, combined with the idea of this Messiah is going to restore the kingdom, it's going to be like it was under David, and, and even better than that. Um, but they also, so, so a sense, in a sense, it was political, the sense of the language of kingdom, authority, Jerusalem being the center, worship, all of that. But I think they also recognize that um, through the First Testament writings that the sacrificial system would come to an end at some point when that Messiah came, that perfect sacrifice. So there was a, a spiritual component to it as well. So I think we're in a kind of a, Mike, a, a both and situation where depending upon who you are and as a hearer and as a listener, your background, um, what you're expecting from Jesus could be, and your perspective on that could uh, would certainly color how you see what's happening. Is that a fair assessment, you all think? Would, yeah, because it's all think from perspective. Be, I would think they'd be looking more for a king to vanquish the Romans at that point. Yeah, and I, I would be agree. Thinking along especially, those lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially since they've come, you know, we've come out of a, a period of the Maccabean revolts where there have been an, a number of attempts to overthrow, right? And so, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me at all if that's what they're, what they're looking for. I'm so just at, the, at the very least, I think we can see, we can, we, can, um, we can make the suggestion, I guess we'll call it, that, that Jesus saw the spiritual needs of this individual and all of us as at least as important um, as the physical needs, right? And so... He was challenging the status quo with his words about who has the authority to forgive sins, all right? 
So now let's take a look as we continue on in Mark chapter two. Let's look in just the next two verses, six and seven. Let's look at, as we're introduced to the scribes, those keepers of the law, if you will. Um, they saw themselves as the interpreters of the law. Let's, um, I would suggest to you they're not thrilled with his response. So let's see what they say in verse six. Some legal experts, that's the common English Bible's uh, uh, translation of the scribes, were sitting there muttering among themselves. Why does he speak this way? He's insulting God. Only the one God can for forgive sins. So it's obviously the scribes are not thrilled with Jesus's action. So what specific language in these verses gives us the sense that they're not thrilled with his declaration of forgiveness here? How do we get that sense? In fact, they're stating he's insulting God. What do you think that means? Insulting God. He's saying he is God. He can do whatever he wants. So or, you know, basically taking, he's taking on a false image, kind of placing too much authority on himself that he doesn't deserve. Okay. What other language do we see that they're, that give us the sense that they're not thrilled with Jesus's declaration here? The word muttering. That's a good word, isn't it? Muttering. <laughs> my, my grandmother on my mom's side, we called her Nanny. Nanny would say to me, stop muttering. Like when she'd ask me to do something, I'd be, right? that's a great word, isn't it? Muttering. So what do we, how do we picture that, Nancy? How do you hear that, Nancy, this muttering? Um, well, like you described just a bunch of people putting their heads together and um, looking at the negative, looking at the bad parts of what they're seeing or hearing and sharing together in the, all of that negativity. And they're looking at, um, it's, it's hard to imagine what it's like to not know that Jesus is the son, you know, at the time, but it's so funny how their standard of judgment is only God can forgive sins and it doesn't occur to them to make the leap. So he must be God. Uh, uh, that would never occur to them in a million years. Instead, they make the leap of, so he's bad because obviously he's not God. So, and of course I wouldn't make that leap either. Yeah, and but anyway. Why, yeah, why wouldn't we make that leap? Remember, the Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is. <laughs> One God. They're not, they have no concept of a triune God at this point, do they? Other than maybe that weird thing that happened at the baptism where the spirit, the dove comes down, it's imaged as a dove and hears a voice from heaven. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. They probably would have looked at that, Johannes, wouldn't they? They just look at that and go, what's going on there? You started to say something? Well, I think too, that muttering, it's that, it's that low grumbling that is low enough that you can't quite make out what they're saying, but loud enough to bring attention to yourself. I like that. Yeah, not, not, not loud enough to challenge the speaker. Like I want to engage with the speaker, but loud enough so that not just those who are gathered, it says the legal experts were sitting there muttering among themselves, but loud enough, Johannes, right? So that people around to get the sense of 
let me, we're, we're the corrective influence here, right? Don't buy into this whole thing that he can forgive sins. That's our job to tell you. And we're telling you only God can do that, right? Mike? Oh, I'm sorry. I saw that you were unmuted. I just thought maybe you had something. Anybody else on that? I think of it as like a, a high school scene where you see like the kids at the table talking about that one person. That's what I, that's what I see when you see mumbling and grumbling, like gossiping about that one person. Right. Is it possible to say, to, to think from the scribes' perspective or to be thinking about him, is, is it possible the scribes were right and wrong at the same time? Maybe that's too hard of a question. I mean, they're right by everything. Is this not true? They are right by everything that Judaism has stood for to this day, right? Mm-hmm. So now it's like Jesus has entered, he's, 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 um, he's made a shift, right? He's, he's asking them to, to widen out their, their understanding of who God is. And so it would be natural for them, if we were in that scenario, I think all of us would probably have responded in the same way that the scribes did. Because their tradition says that belongs to God. They are right. But what Jesus is saying is you have to expand your concept of who God is because God is now in the flesh, which is a concept completely, remember this, would be completely foreign to them. Am I right? Good. So when they're muttering around themselves, let's see how Jesus responds to to the thinking of the scribes. So 8 through 12, this is the last section of this pericope. Jesus immediately recognized what they were discussing. And by the way, immediately, let me pause there for a second. In Mark's gospel, everything is immediately, 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 or right away, um, right away, immediately. That's Mark's sense that, that this is happening right here and right now. It's language he uses a lot. So immediately he recognized that what they were discussing, and he said to them, here we go, great teachers asking great questions. Why do you fill your minds with these questions? That seems like a strange question. As of, well, why would they fill their minds with these questions? Because that's what they've been doing literally for generations. That's their job. And then he says, verse nine, which is easier to say to a paralyzed person, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your bed and walk. But so you will know that the human one has authority on the earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, get up, take your mat and go home. Jesus raised him up and right away he picked up his mat and walked out in front of everybody. They were all amazed and praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. So Jesus immediately recognizes what they were discussing. I love the question he puts to them, which impossibility is easier for you to believe that God's going to, that I could forgive their sins or that this man can walk. Both of them are impossible for them at this point. Wouldn't you agree? They cannot see either of those things. So what strikes you most about how Jesus responds to them in these verses? When I think about um, sins being forgiven, that's not a physical manifestation of seeing something happen. And I think it's more of a stretch if you've not witnessed a miracle to hear him say, um, get up, take up your bed and walk away because that's him literally, I've been paralyzed and get up and go. And that's a bigger miracle 
that people can see and kind of comprehend versus your sins are forgiven because you don't know what those sins are. You don't know if that really has transpired to something in their life. And so I think that was a, to me, that would have been an easier answer than get up and walk. But, but in the Jewish mindset, the, for, the sins had to be forgiven before the healing could come. That, that, that was a Jewish mindset. True. Mike? I think it was interesting that they were muttering among themselves, um, but Jesus called them out right in front of everyone. So where they, they didn't want to be make a scene, so to speak, uh, Jesus didn't mind calling them out and quote unquote making a scene. Agreed. Yeah, that's that's when, when people are muttering like that and you're the person in authority or the person speaking or whatever, and you actually call them on it, that's when it gets it can get like really crazy, right? Because they're they're really not wanting to engage you. They're just trying to, it's like a passive aggressive way of, of, uh, of challenging the, the statements. Yeah, good. What else strikes you about how Jesus responded to them? I think it's like more matter of fact. He's like, so which one is easier for you to believe? And they, they didn't answer. He said, fine, I'll do both of them. Look, look, I'm doing both. I forgive his sins now, get up and go home. Okay, good. Other thoughts? What strikes us about how Jesus responded to them? Uh, okay here's something that strikes me just i don't know if this means anything but the idea of uh, which is easier um given our current context uh we've seen people get up and walk right people who are paralyzed we, we've seen doctors make them give them the ability to get up and walk and move and um but who have we seen who is you know who is able to forgive sins outside of jesus i don't that's just the point that pops into my head today. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Yeah. And, and to kind of follow up to your point, David, that typically that's not, that isn't often assigned to God as in it was the doctors, it's modern medicine, it's look how far things have come, which is all true, right? Um, but I like, the, I like it when we think about it as both questions, both statements are impossibilities in their mind, right? People who are paralyzed from birth don't get up and walk, right? Because either they or their parents have sinned and this is the retribution. This is the punishment for it, right? I think it's more of him establishing that he is God because if you think about it, they usually think of these afflictions being a result of sin, either it being the person's sins or, you know, in their lineage. So him saying your sins are forgiven and him getting up and walking, they're like, okay, that's something only God can make happen either way. So right. ultimately, hello, I'm God, is what he's saying. Right, that's exactly right. So, but, so you will know, the human one, that's Mark's language, messianic language, right? Has authority on earth to forgive sins, just to prove to you, because somebody said, I think it was Nancy, who said before, it's, it's hard to tell, how do you determine whether somebody's sins are forgiven? Or was that Johannes? I can't remember. But somebody said, how do you know if your sins have been forgiven? Well, Jesus said, here, I'm going to show you, right? I have the authority to do this. I said your sins are forgiven. Now I'm going to back it up and I'm going to show you. Stand up. And again, Mark uses language immediately or right away is how it's translated here to, to, to smooth it out, right? So right away, he stood up and he walked out, right? There is the direct, direct, Jesus is actually saying, 
here's how you know that I have the authority to do that because I can make a paralyzed man who you believe is in this position because of his sin. Here's how you know his sin is forgiven. He gets up and he walks and now he can go to the temple. He can offer up his sacrifice and boom, he's in, he's a child of God. Yeah. Isn't it, isn't it lovely that he did both because that means that this man is whole it's not he wasn't just forgiven and he wasn't just healed but he's both he's he's whole now he yeah. this is the shalom package I like now it. i like it that's the yeah the full Isn't package it? i like it excellent yeah another thing that keeps jumping in my mind but i don't know why or what it means is that he used the word easier which is easier and he he didn't say which is more miraculous which is right. more amazing he just said so which is easier yeah. that i don't know why that strikes me but it really strikes me when i read this that's true yeah that's good this is the first of 14 times that mark uses that language that title of the human one to emphasize both the humanity and the deity of jesus right why do you think the scribes of the people gathered there needed proof that Jesus had the authority both to forgive sins and heal people? It's because the entire time that Jesus has been doing these miracles, they've been saying, you know, false Messiah, he's just doing this, don't follow him. He's, he's faking it, and now here he is showing that it's true. So it's okay. basically um, disproving their beliefs, Okay, like their statements. Repeat your question, David. So why do you think the scribes and the people gathered around needed proof that Jesus had the authority both to forgive sins and heal people? I guess the other way of asking the question, what, what is the danger of them believing he has only the power to do one or the other? Well, actually, the order Jesus did it in shows the priority, which was actually part of the law. He forgave okay. the sins, and right. that was his emphasis. I like it. And the follow-on was the physical healing. True. Like that. I was going to say something similar to that. Noticing going back to Jesus was reading the room right from the beginning with the crowds. He knew what they were looking for, but saying sins are forgiven is not a visual thing that everyone just looks for when they come in, but he takes the priority and says, your sins are forgiven. Also reading the room, knowing that these scribes, these political experts are going to be, you know, listening to what he's saying and he pauses for effect while they mutter mm -hmm. and then does the mic drop moment and says <laughs> but wait there's more also get up and walk boom there you go excellent and no extra shipping and handling charges there true yeah mike i i uh, wanted to go back to what jay was saying is about the priority mm -hmm. uh because if if jesus had just healed him and in there in the, the jewish mind is well the this paralysis was a result of his or his parents or ancestors sins then just being um healed without having those sins forgiven uh, might mean that there'll be some other problem later on that's going to afflict your life so the prior priority would be to to have Jesus is saying the priority is first to get right with God before anything else. Right. And I think that's a, that's a fair assessment, remembering now that in this process, then what would happen in their tradition is that he would go and present himself to the, 
to the priests who would see that he had been healed and then he would offer up the sacrifices and everything and he would be made right. So in that scenario, Jesus has kind of sidestepped that piece and said, you don't really need to go and offer up this sacrifice because I am that one perfect sacrifice and in my on my say so, you've been forgiven. No, no offering necessary, right? There's no covering here. It's been, notice it's not, your sin is not covered. Your sin is forgiven, right? Um, I love the way verse 12 gives us the final piece of the story. You know, look, what, what effect does this man's healing and subsequent vertical exit have on the crowd? What does he tell us? What does Mark tell us? If they've never seen anything like this, they're like shocked. All right. They're amazed. They're shocked. What exactly do you think they are amazed about? That is actually happening. That this dude just... He was carried in, dropped down. Now he's actually getting up and walking out. Okay. Any other thoughts on what they might have been amazed about? I mean, certainly that would capture attention, right? This dude is lower down. And he's, been, you know, obviously the 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 implication being everybody knows this man in this small little town, right? I think they would be amazed too that he challenged the scribes because people don't normally challenge them. They just go with whatever they say. So not only did he challenge the scribes publicly when they were muttering and trying not to draw attention. And then I also think about the fact that we, in the beginning, we talked about this huge crowd that was there so much so that the man and his friends couldn't get in. But then the man just picked up and he walked out in front of anybody. Well, did they part way so he can get out? How did he get out of there? Yeah. It's, it's, it, it, it's oddly or eerily reminiscent of the Jesus escaping through in Nazareth, right? Where the people just kind of like, he just escaped through. You, you don't know in the story, Mark doesn't tell us, but you can imagine that picture, right? When the people are just like, oh my goodness. And they just kind of step out of the way and the, the man just kind of walks through their midst. Mike, any other ideas about what they might've been amazed about? Well, the scribes helped him make the point that he was able to forgive sins and he was able to heal uh, through a miracle and they um, aided him in revealing more of who he was to the people. Yeah. So maybe the amazement is about that maybe this guy really is the real deal. Maybe he's mm-hmm. not one of these, yeah. these pretenders. Yeah. Right. Anybody else? Mike, I'm sorry, Mike, I meant to grab your That's okay. Um, were others there to be healed? Were other, is anything there to suggest that part of the big crowd was, hey, I, we've heard about Jesus's miracles of healing and, and so we want to get in on this too. And so the amazement might be he chose to heal this guy that went through all, through the roof of the house instead of standing in line like the rest of us. Could, now that's an interesting, you know, that last sentence kind of tied it all together. Like, you know, why did he choose to let somebody cut the line? I, this, that's the beautiful thing about a story, right? Is it leaves it open for us to imagine. I could see that as a, as a, real, a realistic uh, um, expectation of the people who are there, right? They're in line. Um, it doesn't say there were a whole bunch of people gathered around who needed to be healed, but you would expect from what we know, right? He's, he's definitely going to attract some in that category. For sure. Do you think that this, as he called it, universal amazement, they were all amazed and praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. Do you think that universal amazement included the scribes? 
why or why not? Do you think they're in that crowd that are now amazed? They're amazed because they're not used to being challenged. <laughs> and the fact that he would publicly challenge them in front of all these people who may, who are not used to seeing them being challenged. So one of two things could happen is that the people would turn on Jesus because they're challenging the status quo and they don't want the status quo or they're losing their power and their authority and they're turning the other way. True, they're amazed in that sense, they're amazed that the crowd so quickly abandoned what they know to be true, that only God can forgive sins and so forth. Yeah, I got that, good. I think Jesus inadvertently put their foots in their mouths. They put their so feet in their mouths, like, yeah. They're saying all these things, this can only happen by God. And again, Jesus is like, well, okay, now see what I'm going to do. And they're like, uh, but, uh, 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 okay. uh, uh, Exactly. Yeah, Sherry first and then Mike. Oh, I was going to say the, the word amazed in, in the Greek actually means that, that they were very astonished and beside themselves. So I got a feeling, yeah, the, you know, the, the scribes would have been amazed just because it's like, you know, that there's no explanation, right. you know, they, they would have gone out of their minds with this one. True. Yeah. Mike. Well, let's, let's not forget the second part of that sentence and praise God. Right. And so if yes, they were all amazed, including the scribes, but does this also mean that the scribes also praise God out of their amazement and said, we've never seen anything like this. I just wondered. You know, I just wondered, that's what came to my mind. So did the, did the scribes get, did they flip, in other words? Right. Did they themselves become believers? Could be. Good question. So as we wrap it up uh, today, I want to ask a little bit of a different question, because obviously this part of the calling, this, this storyline is about how Jesus established his authority um, to, you know, his authority to say the things that he did. But I was just wondering um, ourselves, and it goes kind of kind of goes back to what David was saying um, just a little bit earlier. How do we respond individually? I mean, think about it for a minute. How do we respond when we see um, people who we feel as though um, are deserving of the situation they are in? Like we might not say somebody's sin is what put them in their spot, like the, or the parents. Well, let me rephrase that. We probably don't think that somebody's parents put someone in a place and we're going to blame the parents, but we typically, it's not hard for us to imagine that this person has done something, may or may not have done something to put them in that situation. So my question is, how do we, or how should we respond? How do we, and how should we respond, I guess is the, the way to ask it. When God does um, forgive and restore people that perhaps we think don't deserve it or in a way that that maybe we just can't comprehend. Does that make sense, that question? I don't think that it's our place to determine whether someone is deserving to be forgiven or not. Our expectations as believers is that God forgives and God restores. And it doesn't say forgive and restore those that we as human thinks are the beneficiaries of that, but, but restores according to what God says. 
And so I think that we need to learn to stay in our lane and not judge. And just we should be like these people and praise God that God did forgive and restore and be grateful instead of being judgmental about the fact that they received that blessing. So Johannes, what makes that hard for us to do, do you think? I think because we don't always feel like we've been forgiven and we've been restored. And so we take our own personal feelings and we put that on someone else. And so we're like, well, hold on. I didn't get the restoration and forgiveness that I thought, or maybe it didn't manifest the way that I thought it was going to manifest. And it doesn't look like that in my mind. And so I can't see past my own blinders to see that it looks like that for someone else. Excellent. I'm hoping now that maybe some of you are making some connections to the opening song that I put in Lauren, Lauren Daigle's song about that piece of, you know, it's who God says we are. Maybe you're making some of those. We call it in the, in the uh, family waffle table. We call it our story path connections. It's not just random. Yeah. Good. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah. I just Steven? keep thinking that he's kind of, okay. So everybody <laughs> thinks, okay, you can hear it. You're, you know, you have this whole ancestral line, so you inherit their sins, or you inherit their, you know, their blessings, and everything. So he's kind of giving them, telling them everybody, you're not always judged by what everybody else is doing. It's an individualized thing. Yeah. I think he's kind of debunking that. I guess I'm not saying myth, but kind of like right. a myth. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen. Uh, in my mind, it goes further than that even. I don't think we should have to wait until they're restored. I think we have to show acceptance before someone's restored. I like that. Yeah, I like that. That's excellent. Mike? As Christians, we believe in miracles, right? We believe in God doing awesome stuff. Um, but I think sometimes when we see someone's life turned around, whether it be from some addiction or some serious sin um we don't recognize it as god a miracle god we just go oh that is so great i'm so happy for him and we fail to recognize that it could be just as powerful and as amazing a miracle as telling a paralytic to get up yeah yeah not forgetting the, the praising god piece is what you identified before good excellent I was thinking about what Mike said, and I think, too, that when we see that in someone, that we wait for them to fall again instead of having the expectation that they're going to keep living in that blessing. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're suspect of the healing. Yeah, I like that. All right, well, a great, great interaction today. I appreciate all of your, your input. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. We are saving a seat for you at the table.